We uh, come now to the time of the word, and it's found in the book of the prophet Nahum. And as I mentioned last Sunday, that a church member and friend had asked if we would consider going through Nahum uh, because we had just gotten through Jonah, which sets the stage for Nahum. And so we're doing that. We're going to go through Nahum and see this great book uh, of a minor prophet, but an important prophet. And as we think about this this morning, we want to remember a couple of things we said when we began Jonah. First of all, the minor prophets collectively preached for a period of about 300 years, from about 750 B.C. to about 450 B.C. Jonah was at the very beginning of that timeline, depending on how you place him. He's right there at the beginning of that time period. And Nahum's somewhere in about the middle of that time period. And so we see their importance in bridging this gap, if you will, of the minor prophets. Jonah sets a stage for Nahum. Jonah reminds us of the grace of God, of his mercy. And the book of Nahum begins with that assumption that God is long-suffering and slow to anger. And in fact, one of the things that we see in the book of Jonah is it's almost a playing out of that truth that God is slow to anger. He is merciful. God is a God who is merciful. And we see that because in the book of Jonah, the wicked Assyrians cry out to God and he delivers them from the judgment that he would have otherwise brought upon them. Now, God, of course, not surprised at all by the repentance for seeing it, sending Jonah as the instrument, if you will, of both the warning and the deliverance temporally of the Ninevites. But we come now to the second book, the book of Nahum. And the book of Nahum is, if you will, the other book into this story. Because as we think about what happened in the days of Jonah, of a, a wicked empire that repented of their wicked ways, repented of their violence that they were noted for, we spoke about the fact that even to this day, Assyria is noted in all the history as being one of the most brutal empires that ever was. Uh, almost not only renowned for their brutality, but exceptional in their brutality. And we mentioned last time that it really wouldn't be fit with children in the room to describe some of the practices that the Assyrians engaged in that made them, if you will, terrorists or terrorizers in their day. You didn't want to go to war against Assyria because if you lost, they would utterly wipe you out in the most despicable ways imaginable. And so people hated the Assyrians. But again, they swore off of their violence. And they had this amazing awakening in the midst of the preaching of Jonah. But like so many revivals or awakenings, it didn't last. Uh, it's just the reality of it. You can have an amazing event in one generation, and a generation later, it's a completely different story. Sometimes two generations. We read about in the history of Israel in the early days that a generation arose that did not know the Lord. And so we see these things happen, and it happened in Assyria, this nation that was so noted for its violence and its expansion and its greed, very quickly returned to violence and expansion and greed. And again, that put them, put, I should say, Israel in the crosshairs of Assyria. So if we want to see that somewhere around 760, 750, Jonah preached, already by 722, Israel has been dominated by Assyria once more to the point in which Israel as a northern kingdom is wiped out, just destroyed by Assyria, cataclysmically destroyed, if you will. And so again, we see that within just a short time of about a half a century, they went from repenting of all their violence and wickedness and expansion to being right back at it and attacking the people of God. Now again, this isn't something that God didn't foresee. God planned it. God was using Assyria as the instrument of his judgment on Israel. 
In fact, if you really want to get into what we were trying to get at in Jonah, Jonah knows this is going to take place. This is a large part of why Jonah is so hesitant to see the grace of God extended to the people of Nineveh and to the Assyrian Empire because he knows that the judgment of this northern kingdom that he loves so much is tied to what Assyria will one day do. He says, God, I I don't want to see a a resurgent Assyria, Assyria that escapes judgment, if ultimately will mean judgment on the northern kingdom. But that was God's will and plan. For the northern kingdom was sinful, and it would fall under the chastening rod of God. Now we will see this story repeat itself in the southern kingdom, will we not, of Judah, as they may be, as we read in the story, free of Assyria eventually, but God raises up the Chaldeans or the Babylonians to be his rod of correction on the southern kingdom of Judah. So we see God work this story out in just this way. And so again, we see here that Assyria comes and lays siege to the southern kingdom of Judah and particularly to Jerusalem. And you remember this story, Hezekiah the king is, is praying and trusting in God for deliverance. And God does deliver the city of Jerusalem, doesn't he? He trusts in God, and an angel comes and destroys the Assyrian army in a single night. And Sennacherib must return home, and um, it's something that we read about in the history books of the Old Testament. What we want to recognize is that the story doesn't end there. The story of Assyria and the southern kingdom goes on. We usually think in a way of the northern kingdom being uh, tied to Assyria. But the southern kingdom had a long, difficult journey with Assyria as well, because Assyria comes and sieges Jerusalem, and, and Hezekiah stands by faith, and God delivers the city. And it would seem to be, oh, there's an end of the story. But there isn't uh, such a great end there, because Hezekiah doesn't live forever. right? And his son Manasseh takes the throne. And Manasseh is one of the most wicked men to ever rule Judah. In fact, it's because of the great sin of Manasseh that God says, judgment must now come upon the southern kingdom of Judah. Jeremiah prophesies this, that there is an end and that he has crossed it. Manasseh has crossed it and now judgment must one day come. And he reigns for like 50 years. 50 years of evil, of corrupting the people of God, bowing down to the Syrians and bringing in their religious practices and putting them upon the people of God. Idolatry and wickedness and human sacrifice, all these things flourish in the days of Manasseh. So much so that it's a dark time for the kingdom of Judah. Fifty years, roughly, he reigned. And if you think, oh, it's going to get better, or he'll eventually die and someone will take his place, his son Amon takes his place. And he's just as bad. So bad that he only reigns for two years. He only reigns for two years because servants in his own household murder him. That's how wicked a king he was. So understand just for a moment the time in which Nahum will prophesy. It's about this very point during the reign, if you will, of Amon, these two years, right around that time, right around 640 B.C. that he's prophesying. It's a dark time, and Israel must think, has God abandoned us? Has he he sworn off his promise? Has he forgotten his covenantal people? Has he given up on us? If we know something of God, then we would know something of his grace. That's a recurrent theme throughout this text. We want to read this again because this is a message that comes just in this dark hour and is both a note of judgment but also of grace and of hope. So it reads this again. 
The burden against Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum the Elkishite. God is jealous and the Lord avenges. The Lord avenges and is furious. The Lord will take vengeance on his adversaries. And he reserves wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power and will not at all acquit the wicked. The Lord has his way in the whirlwind and in the storm and the clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers. Bashan and Carmel wither and the flowers of Lebanon wilt. The mountains quake before him. The hills melt and the earth heaves at his presence. Yes, the world and all who dwell in it. Who can stand before his indignation? And who can endure the fierceness of his anger? His fury is poured out like fire, and the rocks are thrown down by him. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. And he knows those who trust in him. But with an overflowing flood, he will make an utter end of its place, and darkness will pursue his enemies. What do you conspire against the Lord? He will make an utter end of it. Affliction will not rise up a second time. For while tangled like thorns and while drunken like drunkards, they shall be devoured like stubble fully dried. From you comes forth one who plots evil against the Lord, a wicked counselor. Thus says the Lord, Though they are safe and likewise many, yet in this manner they will be cut down. When he passes through, though I have afflicted you, I will afflict you no more. For now I'll break off his yoke from you and burst your bonds apart. The Lord has given a command concerning you. Your name shall be perpetrated or perpetuated no longer. Out of the house of your gods I will cut off the carved image and the molded image. I will dig your grave, for you are vile. Now my friends, as we read this, I want us to think of three points. First of all, a sovereign God. Second of all, a frightful judgment. And third, a gracious message. Now, with the Lord's help, we'll hopefully see all those points today, uh, beginning with recognizing this is a serious text, a violent text, a text of judgment and warning, a text that we can't escape from but must proclaim because it's in the collection of the Word of God given to us. It's an important message to, to read and to think about. And so beginning first with the point that this is about a sovereign God, uh, we want to recognize that fact. God is claiming His sovereignty, His right to judge. He is claiming that He is over all the nations, particularly right to bring judgment upon this ripe nation, the nation of Assyria. And the text begins by pointing out that it's written ultimately by Nahum, and we could make the mistake of thinking this is somehow about Nahum. Nahum is simply the, the tool, right? Simply the utensil that God is using to bring this message. He is the prophet, the man God has called to bring this message. And immediately we see what kind of message it is because it says it's a burden, a massah, a burden, an oracle. Maybe your Bible translates that as an oracle, a message from God. Usually these oracles are messages of judgment and destruction. And this certainly is one. It's a message of judgment and destruction upon the Assyrians, and particularly upon the Ninevites. But notice, the reason it's often translated as burden is because the idea of an oracle is something that is heavy, something that is weighty, something that you put upon your back and struggle with. In other words, this is a message that is not easy to bring. It's a message that is difficult to bring, and might bring you yourself in danger in bringing it. 
certainly Assyria was the most powerful nation on earth, you can imagine they wouldn't take kindly to the person who brings this message on behalf of God. And yet, this burden, if you will, is, is uh, carried by Nahum, the prophet of God. But it is ultimately not Nahum's message, is it? It's God's message. God's message for the Assyrians and God's message for His own people in Judah. Notice also it says it's a book of vision. In other words, this is a vision the Lord has given to him. This is not something he's come up with or he's put together, but was given to him as a vision. And it is extremely rare that you find in the Scriptures an entire book described as a vision. Maybe that's something like what we see in Revelation. But the entire book is a book of a vision that was given to Nahum the prophet by God. And so it's both a burden, an oracle, and also this vision, prophetic vision given to Nahum. It mentions that he's an Elkishite, or the Elkishite. And we might wonder where exactly is Elkosh? Nobody knows for sure. It's disappeared as far as we know. Many people believe, and the early church argued, that it's actually Capernaum. That they changed the name later to Capernaum in the New Testament days, or even before the New Testament days, uh, to honor him. That would mean something like the city of Nahum. And so some people think that's the designation that it was. But again, we don't want to focus too much on Nahum here. Nahum is the instrument of this message. He is the one that God is using to bring this message. But the message must be looked upon. What is the burden? What is the background of this message? We know it's Assyria, and they've offended God, and repeatedly sinned against God. And now, Nahum brings the message that speaks to who God is and what he plans to do. So just looking at the text, he begins with the idea that God is a jealous God. God is a jealous God. And people try to explain this away. They don't like the word jealousy when it comes to God. But God is a jealous God. The the Scriptures do not hide from this. Joshua, when he says, Choose this day whom you will serve, he says to them, For the Lord God is a jealous God. And he's quoting basically from the Ten Commandments. Right? Where in the Second Commandment it says, For the Lord your God is a jealous God. In other words, He will not have you worshiping idols in His place. God's jealousy is holy. And where jealousy is holy, it is right. God cares about His people. He doesn't want to see them fall into idolatry and the worship of false gods to their own harm and destruction. He loves His people. He desires that they be faithful to Him. He is jealous for their love of Him. Now, we understand this in some way from married life, don't we? We are jealous for our spouse. We have a zeal when it comes to the affection of our spouse. We don't want our spouse giving affection to others. That is a covenantal relationship that we have with our spouse when we say that we have a mutual love one for another that is unique in all this world. It's not to be shared in that way with anyone else. God says that's a picture, if you will, of the jealousy He has for His covenantal people. Bound by this covenant, He loves us and He desires that we be Utterly, in fact, we go beyond desires. He demands that we be utterly faithful to Him. Put our affection upon Him as He has put His affection upon us. And we see where that goes awry, don't we? We can think about the very beginning of Malachi. Oh, how I've loved you, says the Lord. And their response is not, yes, you have loved us and how we have loved you, but is, how have you loved us? They haven't understood the love of God or recognize it. They certainly have not returned it. God is jealous that His people love Him. But He's also recognizing this as a moral command throughout all the universe. All people ought to do what is right and worship the holy and living God. 
So where any nation does not worship him, he can say that he is zealous that they do so, that he is jealous that they do not recognize his glory and that it does bring judgment. At the heart of the story is judgment brought upon a people who will not give proper love and respect to God. And so he is jealous, it says. We shouldn't run from that or hide from what the Word of God says. And that the Lord avenges. He is an avenger. He is one that brings right where there is wrong. He is one that repays the wicked. Again, this is not a popular thing to say in the modern church, is it? It's nice just to focus on the scriptures that speak about God as full of love, but His love can't be separated from jealousy. His love cannot be separated from His holiness. His love cannot be separated from His judgment and His righteousness. It cannot be separated from His wrath. It cannot be separated from His vengeance upon evil. We've spoken about this many times. You cannot even be a good earthly judge if you don't care about wickedness. If you say, I'll just let all these criminals and murderers and rapists go free. Something I think Ray Comfort's been saying for like 25 years, right? A judge that says, oh, I'm not going to send anybody to prison or bring any judgment against anybody anywhere because I want to be a good and loving judge. He's just the opposite. He's a corrupt and evil judge because he does not punish wrongdoers. God is jealous and he is a God who avenges wrongdoing. In fact, the next little phrase tells us even more. Not only does he avenge, but in this current moment, he is furious. Right now, that is as we often talk about, as uh, the Reformers kind of helped us to, to flesh this out, this is really using human language to help us to understand the moment we're in. God doesn't change, right? God doesn't suddenly get mad over something. God saw all this coming, but it reminds us that in a human way of thinking so that we'll understand God, God has a fury against sin, and He recognizes that this is the moment of divine judgment coming upon these Assyrians says he will take vengeance upon his adversaries. That's what it's saying, that he will bring justice in this moment. Now notice he refers to the Assyrians as adversaries. They're at war against him. Now we can see this in many different levels. They, they hate God, they worship false gods, they give glory to false idols, but they've also been at war against God's people. Right? They were the ones coming in. Now, God directed them to do so, but they are the ones that have come in and wiped out the northern kingdom. They're the ones that have completely harassed for, for many, many decades the southern kingdom of Judah as well. So God says, they are my adversaries, and I've reserved wrath for them, for all my enemies. Now, this is important to recognize. He's talking about Assyria and Nineveh here, but this is true of all those who are enemies of God. They will fall under his wrath. The Bible makes no bones about that. It, it portrays that over and over again. We must not hide that fact. God will bring wrath upon His enemies on the last day and maybe even in days leading up till then in earthly wrath and fury as He does here. But Nahum wants to remember something about God. He says, this is the God who is slow to anger. This is the God who is merciful. This is the same God. Quoting again from from the books of Moses, from the Torah, this description of God that is given to Moses, that God Himself gives to Moses. He quotes this and says, Do not forget that the Lord is slow to anger. In other words, uh, they have had much time to repent of sin. God, even in the person, in the book of Jonah, gave them right a special 
opportunity to repent and they only repented for a short time and returned to their evil ways. You know, oftentimes when people quote that description of God as slow to anger, that he's merciful, they leave off the part where it says he's also powerful and will not acquit the guilty. Right? He doesn't overlook sin. We should never see God's mercy as being due to weakness or being due to a lack of concern about holiness or about sin. God will judge sin. Whatever period of time we're given up until then is merciful. But there will come a day of judgment. The Bible tells us this over and again. And here, even in this book of judgment uh, in Nahum, we see this message that the Lord is merciful and slow to anger. But do not misunderstand that mercy. That mercy is a mercy uh, until the day of wrath, and it will come, for he will not acquit the wicked. Uh, I think um, one commentator said that God can be merciful, but he must be just. He must be just, for it's his very nature to be holy and righteous. He cannot go against it. Now, if we see all of that, we need to recognize something else that's very important here, because it speaks of the power, almost in cataclysmic terms of God. We shouldn't forget who we're dealing with here. This is the God who created all things, the God who has power over all things. And if you look at the description here, it makes that clear. He walks and controls the whirlwinds and the storms. They are at His beck and call. God controls all these things. And notice this beautiful poetic language that the clouds are the dust of His feet. As you look to the clouds, the imagery is this is like the footsteps of God. Again, personification, but to help us to think grandly about the power and majesty of our God. He is a powerful God who rebukes the seas. Now we can think of that even in the days of Jonah, can't we? God caused the storm at sea. He threw that storm at Jonah and he calmed that storm the second Jonah was thrown into the deep. So again, even the sea obeys the commands of God. We see that again in the life of Christ. Who is this one that even the seas obey. Who is this one? So again, we see this and we recognize that God is sovereign and powerful. We see also that there is no one that can withstand His power. The author here gives some special examples that we might think of as being almost glorious and untouchable in all the earth. Bashan with its noting of having incredible flocks of bulls, of livestock, No, God can bring it down into nothing tomorrow. What about Carmel? This is a mountain known for its fertility, noted for bringing up crops and so forth right around it. No, God can bring a drought. In fact, He did that in the days of the prophets. Brought a drought to that very mountain. So again, He's already proven that He can do that. And what of Lebanon? Lebanon was known for its flowers and for its great forests and trees. No, God will bring them down. If he chooses to do so, there is none who can stand, none who can withstand God's judgment. Why? Because the mountains, even the very mountains, quake before him. If God is walking, if you will, toward Assyria, even the mountains shake in his presence. Shake in his presence. The hills melt away before him. It's the idea of making straight the path of the Lord. Even the hills come down to straighten out the path for God. And what else here? The very earth heaves in His presence. Nature recognizes the glory and majesty and power of God. Why don't you? Right? That's what it's saying. Why don't you, Assyria? All of nature recognizes 
who God is, you don't. Yes, the world and all who dwell in it should recognize. So here's a rhetorical question. Who can stand before his indignation? I think the answer is pretty obvious. No one, right? No one can stand. Who can endure the fierceness of his anger? It's rhetorical because we know the answer implied. No one can stand. No one can endure the fierceness of his anger. Assyria will not stand. Nineveh will not stand. This great city will not stand. Just as Jericho came tumbling down, the walls came tumbling down, so this great city, called great over and over again in Scripture, will collapse when God comes against it. For His fury is poured out like fire. He then goes on to say something else here that we need to see. Look at verse 9. What do you conspire against the Lord? Notice at the heart of this is a people conspiring against God. God did call Assyria to be a judgment, a chastening rod against the northern kingdom. But Assyria didn't see itself in submission to God. Assyria saw itself according to its own ends to bring judgment against a nation that it wanted under its authority, to subject it under its authority. And so again, they're conspiring against God, against God's people, against God's nation. And notice what God says, that He will make an utter end of it. Now some people say that's the conspiracy. Some people say that's the nation or city. It doesn't matter. It's all tied together. He's going to bring the city of Nineveh to nothing. He's going to bring the nation of Assyria to nothing. He's going to bring their conspiring to nothing. It's all going to be brought down. And this great city of Nineveh, which people thought is indestructible, God will destroy it, and He'll destroy it very quickly. And then He says something very important for us. Affliction will not rise up a second time. He's speaking there to His people. The affliction that you've suffered at the hands of the Assyrians will not come again. It won't be like in the days of Jonah where they seemed to be in decline for a period of time and then they were revived through the mercy of God. No, this they will be brought to an utter end. There will be no second rising for Assyria. They will be brought down permanently. Permanently. Now the interesting thing is history bears that that happened. It's kind of amazing to think about, but for something like just over 2,000 years, no one even knew where Nineveh was was never rebuilt, was discovered, I think, in the late 1800s by archaeologists who found it, but it just disappeared from the face of the earth. It's near modern-day Mosul, if you're familiar with Iraq today, but it was never rebuilt. And so here is this great city that just disappears, and this great empire that just a short time ago ruled the world, and it disappears from existence in a very short time. In historical terms, an incredibly fast decline. From like 630 being the most powerful nation on earth, 612 Nineveh utterly wiped out. In historical terms, that's really fast. But whenever God judges a nation, it happens just that way. Think about Babylon. Think about what we read about in the book of Daniel. They're in the heights of power. And, and when that handwriting comes on the wall and he says, this very night judgment will fall upon you personally and upon this city, who would have believed it? And yet that's the very thing that happens. So we see this, this message that Nineveh and Assyria will be utterly wiped out. And then he describes them in these three ways that are important for us to recognize. They are drunkards. Drunkards. Now what does that mean? They're in their own self-imposed stupor. Now we might also argue a, a uh, God-derived stupor, but 
whatever the case, they are ignorant to what's going on, just like a drunk who's stumbling around who doesn't know what's happening around him. They have no idea this is coming upon them. Also, they are tangled like thorns. This in the the books of the Old Testament often symbolizes being hard-hearted toward God, fruitless and twisted up and not recognizing it. And then all this has set the stage for what he says there in the third instance, which is they are to be devoured like stubble fully dried. When stubble is dry, it burns quickly, doesn't it? It catches fire quickly and burns quickly. He says the, the ripeness for judgment is now and it will come quickly upon them. Now this deals with our second point, the destruction, if you will, the, the seriousness of this judgment. Because he goes on to say not only that they'll be destroyed, but he says, from you comes one who is representative, if you will, of the evil and rebellion of Assyria. This is the king of Assyria. The king of Assyria. Now, some people argue that it's Sennacherib, but I think it's too late to be Sennacherib. And there are a number of kings, but there's only one that's at about the right time. And he's saying of this king, you are, if you will, the personification of this rebellion against me. You rebel, you fight against the work of God, you symbolize the one that I've raised up to bring judgment upon, and it is coming. It is coming. Now, we could see this, if you want to, as a larger picture of judgment upon any nation that turns against God and against leaders that turn against God throughout the Scriptures. Even, if you will, in, these, in the last days, if you will, you can think of it in that very way. The judgment that will come upon anyone who rises up in obstinance and, and rebellion against God. But We also want to see this, that he says, Though they are safe and likewise many, numerous and feel themselves to be safe, that's probably around 640, as we said, because they had just defeated the Babylonians, an early upstart version of the Babylonians. They had defeated them, and they had no rival for a time. For like five or six years, for the only time in their history that they weren't at war, they were at peace. In fact, they turned to things like poetry and writing. It's a very strange period for the Assyrians. But the truth is, they were also at their fullest strength in that moment. So it's where you could picture and say they are many and they are at peace. And even though in this moment they feel safe, yet I will cut them down. God says no matter their numbers, no matter their power, none of that matters. They will be brought low. And then he says something that we need to recognize. Because in the midst of all this judgment, there is also a note of grace. A note of grace to God's people. If you want to look at it just for a moment, you would just find it throughout this text. Because it is throughout the text. As you look at, um, at the very earliest part here, as he speaks about being slow to anger and uh, not acquitting the wicked, he's making a promise here that evil will be judged. This is a promise to his people as well, that the evil people that are causing them issues will fall under the judgment of God. Just as God promised elsewhere, the Babylonians, yes, he will use the Babylonians, the Chaldeans, to judge the southern kingdom, but so too will they fall under judgment. As Habakkuk says, God, how can you do this? How can you use a more wicked people than us to judge our sin? He says, don't worry, I'm going to do that, and then I'm going to bring them under judgment for their sin. And in the same way, he's telling his people here, they will not be acquitted for their wickedness. And as you think about this just a little bit further, you might want to look at verse 7 because it says this, the Lord is good. Now, we know that to be true. He is upright he is perfectly righteous but he's good now who is this a message to the Ninevites 
I mean, it's still true to the Ninevites. He is just in his judgment of Nineveh. He is just in his judgment of Assyria. But this is a message to his people. Because look at the very next phrase. A stronghold in the day of trouble. Will the Assyrians find a stronghold in God? No, this is a promise of definite doom, of definite judgment coming. No, this is a word to his people. You've been delivered in times past by me. And I delivered you not long ago, if you will, when the Assyrians came to Jerusalem and surrounded the city. Know that your hope is not in Egypt. right? It's not in Babylon. Your hope is in the Lord. He is the one who will deliver you on that day of trouble. Trust in Him. Make Him. Make me, God is saying. Your strong tower. Trust in me. That's where you will find hope and rest. And if we would see that, we also want to see that as he comes down in verse 12, Nahum, speaking on behalf of God, says something else. Where he says that they are safe and many, and yet they will still be cut down. He says, though I have afflicted you, I will afflict you no more. What he means here is, to the people of Judah, to the nation of Judah, though you have been under affliction at the hand of the Assyrians, you will no longer be under affliction. Now, you can't make this a blanket statement, can you? And say that God will never again use another nation to judge Judah because he plans on doing that very thing. In fact, it's already been prophesied that he's going to do this through Babylon. But what he means here is, these Assyrians will no longer be a trouble to you. I'm being done with them once and for all. They will no longer afflict you. I'm going to break their yoke from you. Now, there's another yoke coming in the form of Babylon that will meet and fill God's purpose. It will do exactly what God wants for Babylon to do in bringing judgment upon Judah. But this problem is at an end. And I think in this, if we're thinking rightly, what God is telling them is, I will always bring you through these valleys. I will always bring you through these chastisements because I've made promises to you. When he in Jeremiah says, I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you. And of course, this is given knowing the people are going to go into exile and one day come back. What he's saying is, recognize that even this is part of my plan. Even this chastisement and this chastening and being taken into Babylon and eventually returning is part of my plan for you. Yes, you must go through this valley, but I haven't forgotten about you. I haven't given up on my promises. For God cannot do so. God must keep His promises. And so we see it here again. God is reminding them, I am the one who can bring an end to the affliction. I am the one who can break the bonds of the enemy from your neck. I am the one that you should turn to to see this happen. Now, if you think again about what we said just a moment ago, we're going to start to close here. If you just think about what we said a moment ago in the introduction, about the time this would have been prophesied, about 640, it may have been the darkest time, except for the very end, where Babylon is coming and, and replacing your rulers and you're in complete, uh, complete submission to this earthly power. Except for that, this is probably the darkest hour in the history of Judah. They've had 50 years of evil rulers. They're seeing unbelievable things taking place. The the temple corrupted, if it's even being used at all. The priesthood corrupted, if it's even 
working at all. They're seeing idolatry everywhere. The king forcing this upon the people. They're seeing human sacrifice. All these things that they got from the Assyrians have been brought into Judah. And they're looking at 50 years. Think of how long that is. 50 years of wickedness and evil in their nation. Just a darkness. And during this time, up until Nahum, most people say it doesn't appear there was a single prophet who had spoken since the days of Manasseh. So we're talking about a half a century. No prophetic word, nothing good seeming to happen, just evil reigning in Judah and in Jerusalem. And people had to be thinking, what's happening here? If they were spiritually sensitive at all, if they had any kind of tender heart, if they had any idea of what it should be like, they had to be thinking, what is going on here? Has God just turned us over? Has He just allowed this to happen because we're such a wicked people? Think about again Habakkuk, and he says, God, why are you letting this go on in our land? Habakkuk says, how can this stand, this evil that's going on in in this day? So some godly people were wondering, what is happening here, God? Why are you allowing this? What is going on? Has God turned His back on us? Has He forgotten us? And it's at this moment that Nahum comes forward to bring this word to say God has not forgotten. He will judge your oppressors. He will bring destruction upon this wicked land. And in doing that, He will set you free. Free you from your oppression, from the bonds, from, if you will, the shackles, and even from the yoke. For the Lord loves you, and He's a stronghold unto you. And this begins to have us think about the Scriptures in a way that we ought to, but maybe haven't. Which is that so often... God's works of mercy are tied to His works of judgment. We see it over and again in the Old Testament, right? That He frees His people, does something gracious toward His people in destroying an enemy. And in a way, that can't be lost that there's that truth in the gospel as well. Because even in the gospel, we see is freedom for the people of God, deliverance for the people of God. But we also note that Christ destroyed the power of sin and death, the slavery that we were in to sin and death, he destroyed it, overcame it, right? Made it as if hollow in one sense. So again, over and over again, we see God's glory made manifest in the scriptures by both his mercy and his judgment. Judgment here toward Nineveh, this wicked people, and salvation, if you will, for his own people. And even when we come to the story of Babylon, we'll see the same thing. They're going to be led into captivity there they're going to be brought back and God's purpose still continues forward as he promised over and again he is working in just this way bringing nations up and bringing them down according to his purpose according to his mighty work and sometimes along the way you can see how gracious he is though we already promised in the days of Manasseh that the southern kingdom had its end date stamped if you will that because of the wickedness of Manasseh, the southern kingdom would fall. And yet even after Amon, and you have to think, oh my goodness, it's just going to continue this downward spiral. Who takes the throne? Josiah, the tender-hearted king, who brings reform and reformation to Judah. And it's a glorious chapter, but it cannot change what must come to pass. That judgment is still coming upon the land of Judah. But even through that judgment and destruction, 
God is still keeping his promises. In fact, what we need to recognize is he's keeping his promises through judgment and destruction. That it's a tool that he uses to magnify himself and to do the work that he has set out to do to deliver his people. So my friends, as we enter into Nahum, there is much here. It's a, it's a short book, but a difficult book, a, a packed book, a stacked book. There's much that we didn't even talk about this morning. We'd be here for 15 weeks in Nahum if we did. There's an, a, a partial acrostic in the beginning of this letter that ties to a, a psalm. And is he referencing that psalm? And there's much to debate about these things. It's also one of the great books of poetry. In fact, most scholars say it's the last great book of Hebrew poetry in the Old Testament. But what it really is, is a book to remind us that God is at work in both his judgment and his mercy according to his purpose to save his people. And to that end, we ought to give thanksgiving. Amen.